I was always like, I wanted the story. Um, I wanted to scoop. Um, I wanted it by any means possible. And so I never thought this is, I never, I never really stopped to think like, you know, is this acceptable? Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Jake Edelstein, an American reporter who worked on the police beat in Tokyo for more than a decade. The new HBO show Tokyo Vice is based on his own memoir about covering crime and the underworld in the Japanese capital. I called up Jake in Tokyo to discuss how he went from growing up on a farm in Missouri to being the first American to work as a reporter at Japan's biggest newspaper. We also discussed what he learned covering organized crime in Japan and how the HBO show came together. Jake, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. It is my pleasure. There's, there's nothing like I, I like more than getting up at 11 p.m. to do an interview. <laughs> <laughs> I do apologize about the time zone difference in Japan. Uh, so I'm very happy to have you on because I was a big fan of the show, which stars Ansel Elgort as you. And uh, I'm also a huge fan of your book, which is an incredible look at covering the Japanese underworld for one of the biggest papers, the biggest paper in Japan. I want to start at the beginning of your life. Before you became a reporter and one of the foremost experts on Japanese organized crime, you grew up on a farm in Missouri. I, How did you did. go from Missouri to Japan? Uh, well, um, it's not such a complicated tale. Um, I became interested in Japan through doing karate in high school. Um, um, and I liked it. Uh, and my teacher grew up in Okinawa, so we, you know, he, he uh, taught us a lot about you know, the history of karate and um, the, the discipline behind it, Zen Buddhism and, and many things. Um, so I was at the University of Missouri and there was an exchange program with Sophia University. Usually it would require that you have two years of Japanese before you could go as an exchange student. But because the yen was so powerful um, and, you know, it was, Japan was in the middle of the bubble economy, um, I think people were afraid to go or didn't think they could afford to go. Um, and so we had 20 students coming from Sophia University, um, which is a which is a very good university in Japan, to University of Missouri-Columbia, and we had no one going. Um, and even I could point out to the people in the International Exchange Program um, that uh, that's not an exchange. I mean, that's a pretty one-sided deal. And I said, you know, so you've got nobody going and I'm offering going, so you should let me go. And they said, okay. Uh, I think that was, you know, the first real negotiation I, I did in my life, like with, with high stakes and it went well. And I, I remember particularly that the weird thing about it was that um, I was walking across the campus past the campus McDonald's, which the fact that I know where the campus McDonald's doesn't say much about my college taste in food, but uh, <laughs> I didn't know where it was. I, I literally got hit in the fire with a, you know, hit in the face with a flyer for the exchange program, like was like floating through the air with all the other debris. And I was like, Oh, well, you know, I guess I'll go over to the international office and see what's the deal with this thing. So I wouldn't say it was fate, but, uh, you know, things worked out very well. And once I got to Japan and through a series of chance encounters, I ended up living in this small Zen Buddhist temple in, um, Toshima ward. I was like, you know, uh, I was like, I, I extended my stay for another year. And then after two years, I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to go back to Missouri. Um, not that there's anything wrong with Columbia, Missouri. It's a nice little town, well, it's a little college town. And uh, I stayed and transferred to Sophia University. And how did you then get into journalism? So, you know, by my third year in, J in Japan, I'd studied, I've been, I've been studying reading and writing a lot because 
Um, the Japanese language is, you know, is, is one of the most difficult languages in the world, they say. But the written language is particularly difficult. Um, mm. And as part of doing that, I decided, well, you know, why I'll, I'll join the school newspaper and I'll write some articles. Um, because, you know, written Japanese, especially in sort of a newspaper format, it's very, very rigid, very patterned. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I, I had been in school newspaper um, in the Ichigaya faction, uh, campus. So I, I went over, I joined the school newspaper, which um, was in this really, like, you know, subterranean office with no windows um, and, you know, um, um, very poor um, air circulation, but uh, stacked with newspapers. Um, and um, he started writing for the school newspaper. And my editor at the time, actually Inu Kaikun, ended up being in charge of, uh, uh, ended up becoming a reporter himself years later after me, um, and f ended up following Prime Minister Abe around for like three or four years. Like that was his job to follow Prime Minister Abe around before Prime Minister Abe became Prime Minister, um, mm -hmm. which seems like a, a very thankless job. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, so I, you know, I was in the school newspaper, I had about a year of uh, a year of school left um, and some of my colleagues were, were preparing for these examinations that the newspapers give um, and the television stations give which are kind of large scale in-house personalized sort of SAT examinations um, and uh, uh, I began preparing for a couple uh, you know not really thinking that anyone would hire me but, but thinking I have you know a year left and if I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to really improve my Japanese, I need a goal. Like most people, if I don't have a goal, I just sort of flounder around. Mm. Um, so uh, it was quite a surprise when I actually did well enough on two of the exams to be called back for the final rounds. One of the really interesting things detailed in the book is the the really rigorous entrance exams to get into these Japanese newspapers. Is it still that competitive? No, because uh, I think most people don't want to become Japanese newspaper reporters it's a really hard job and mm. the pay still relatively good but i i don't think that there are as many people trying for the jobs as before um, right because people know how tough it is and like everywhere else in the world newspaper circulation in japan has been going down for a couple of years so when people are looking to the future they're going is you know is there going to be a job for me in 20 20 years right 10 years when you describe the job of being, you, you were a crime reporter. And one of the things that stood out to me is how immersive it is. You're constantly at the bureau. When you aren't, you're drinking late into the night with sources and cops and criminals. In the evenings, you do rounds and visit the homes of detectives to try and glean information. Mm, mm, mm. Tell us about what it was like being a reporter and, and about how immersive it was. Well, you know, one of the things that, that I don't think... Um, I don't think I emphasized in the book much. I mean, it's maybe three or four lines, but it's important to understand why we do the, why we do the things that we do is that there's a civil servants law in Japan, which technically makes it illegal for a police officer or government official to speak to you about something that they've learned on the job. Um, they can be arrested for that. They can go to jail. So it is very rare to name a police source. You can never say officer so-and-so said this or, you know, or uh, even referring to a sp specific branch of a police department 
can be can get a lot of people in trouble. Um, and so it's always, you know, according to police sources, according to investigative sources, uh, according to government officials. And since we all know that it's not kosher for them to be speaking to us, even though they are, um, the pretext is that we are, and when you go out to talk to them, that you're not really collecting information, that you're just drinking with them, just socializing <laughs> them, talking about current affairs, world affairs, right? right? And since you're both shit-faced drunk, I don't know if we can say that on the radio or on the podcast you're, anymore. You're um, good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, you know, I, I used to do public radio in Columbia, Missouri, KOPN 89.5 FM, your community radio station. It still exists. Can't, can't say shit-faced on that on air. No, there. no. I think that, you know, there used to be like George Carlin's routine about the seven words you can't say on radio. And yep. that was, a that was, that was one of them. So, um, anyway, uh, so, you know, you, you get drunk and the pretext is if anything happens, you're like, oh, I, you know, I don't, I, you know, we were just drinking. I don't remember what happened. And maybe you actually don't remember what happened because you drink so much. Um, and since you're, since this is the pretext, you can't take memos. You can't take notes while you're with the cops. Right. So you're, you're drinking. I mean, very, very rarely did I do this, but it's, you know, go to the bathroom once and scribble down things, but usually, uh, you drink with the cops, you know, the cops from various sections, you, you know, pull out the information or beginnings of information to let you get the next story. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's, then you have the use of a taxi or a a company car to take you home because there used to be a problem with reporters getting in drunk driving accidents and that's not good for the paper and that's expensive. So, um, you know, you have, you know, you get to go visit these cops in this, in a taxi uh, company car and then after you're done you hop in the car and you you write down everything you can before you pass out so <laughs> i i still have these notebooks that begin with uh you know uh you know met so and so you know here's what the south you know, south you know the south unit is working on so the north unit is he said this you know and the notes are pretty good and then by page four you just sort of have my my my, my pen falling down the paper you know <laughs> And, um, and, and, and there's an art to this was, would be like, you know, you, you have to really know your, your, the division you're covering. I started, uh, 94, I started covering the organized crime division, um, which is Bodokudan Taisoku Ichi, Taisoku Ni. And, um, the investigative part, of, there's an intelligence gathering part of an organized crime control division. And there's a actual, like, you know, ass busting division of it. Right. And sometimes mm-hmm. the uh, intelligence gathering division will do cases as well, kind of white collar cases. But they were divided into like north, south, east, and west. Pretty simple. So you would find that the the you know the head of the north division, you know, of course he doesn't want to tell you what he's doing. But if you got drunk enough, he'd tell you like, oh yeah, they got this great case you're doing in the south, you know, about this about these jackets that have set up this political organization. It's a total fraud, and you know, and they're collecting donations right. from people, and you'd be like. That's very interesting. So that was it. Um, uh, and, and the drinking was crazy because cops drink a lot. Japan is drinking culture. I, I don't know if right. you've been following this, but there was a, you know, a huge news story that if I wasn't um, working on another project, I might have done for the Daily Beast about the fact that the Japanese government, you know, was trying to figure out a way to make young people drink more alcohol, right? Um, 
because alcohol sales are, are declining for the young. I mean, what country tries to get to turn right. the youngsters into, into <laughs> alcoholics, right? Um, uh, yeah, but, you know, I, I, one cop I really liked, uh, uh, let's call him Mr. I. I would go to his house and he would start with a beer because Japanese people love to start the drinking session mm-hmm. with a beer. It's like Tori Aizubiru. Okay, and you have a beer and we'd have sake, um, which I like sake. I've developed a taste for it. We'd have sake, then we would have wine. And then if it was uh, winter, uh, I'd have it give me a shot of whiskey for the road. And, you know, by the time I got, you know, back on the road, I was you know, barely, barely coherent. The notes, notes get less and less legible, I imagine. Yeah, and, definitely. And I can imagine it would be hard. And you talk about this in the book a, a little bit, hard to draw ethical lines about how you're gleaning information. Like you have this one great passage that I, I want to, I want you to tell us about where one of your superiors, you came back with information, you told him how you got it. And he said, well, you, you blackmailed the source. And you said, well, no, I didn't. I did a sort of exchange of information. And it's sort of, uh, you know, a lot of what you were working with at the time, whether it was having these personal relationships, drunken relationships with sources, even going so far as to have, you know, romantic relationships with sources. Mm-hmm. How did you draw those, those ethical lines? And, and like, tell us about some of those experiences. Well, I mean, you know, here's what I was taught. This was, this was, you know, my course in newspaper ethics, because I did not go to journalism school as most reporters here do not go to journalism school. You were taught, you know, uh, most important thing is to write the truth and write something that people don't want written. Um, that's the ideal. I mean, you know, that's what they always say. Um, in fact, in practice, that's not always true, but write the truth that the public needs to know, um, and, and the second thing was protect your sources. And the number third, the third rule is if you can't protect your sources and write the truth, then either find another source or um, abandon the story. And uh, that was it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's a very gray area here. Reporters and police or reporters and politicians have very, you know, uh, incestuous kind of mutually benefiting relationships. So. Everything from, uh, you know, the the uh, Yomiri had its own baseball team. And so we would get access to good tickets, but we'd have to pay for them out of their own pocket. I don't think many people understood that. Um, so you could give your favorite cop, you know, baseball tickets. And it had to sort of be under the pretext. Like, yeah, yeah, here's, you know, yeah, I just picked these up for you at the office. So, the, you know, they're not worth anything, right? Um, that's right. They are. They're very expensive. You know, so I... Uh, the University of Missouri Columbia has a school of journalism. And when Tokyo Vice was reviewed by the Columbia Daily Tribune, it had this burn that I've never forgotten, but uh, uh, I almost have it memorized in my head, but it was kind of true. It was like, uh, you know, Jake Adelson grew up in Columbia, Missouri, but he never attended the journalism school here, here. Because if he had, he wouldn't have broken most of the rules that we are taught to follow as responsible ethical reporters here. He slept with sources. He sorted through the trash. He blackmailed police officers for a scoop. And I read that and I thought, am I doing something wrong? (laughs) (laughs) I I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a lot better about those things now. Right. Um, You know, it's like, you know, we are, uh, I, I don't know what to say. You know, there's kind of a, there's a kind of a thing also too, is you, you ask a dishonest person, an honest question, you get a dishonest answer sometimes right. to get to the truth. You have to apply pressure. 
Um, right. And that seemed fair to me. And really, uh, a lot of my um, training in how to be a good reporter, how to get people to talk, came from this police officer um, who sort of liked me and took me in. His family said, um, Sekiuchi Chiaki, and he was an organized crime cop. Um, so he taught me methods of interrogation and how to get people to give you the answers. And I don't think many people know this, but, you know, cops will 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 threaten, lie and uh, and mislead people to get them to get them to give them the answers. So, you know, it's the classic is like your buddy just ratted you out and right. since he's being cooperative. But, you know, the prosecutor is going to ask for a lighter sentence. But you, you know, you're going to get the book thrown at you. And mm. even though plea bargaining isn't. Uh, wasn't legal in Japan until last year, or like until 2019. Um, that kind of uh, that kind of bargaining with uh, pleading guilty of crime for a lesser sentence and giving evidence, right? Uh, in in fact, it it did it, it did take place in behind closed doors, very very quietly. So you know that's that's the rationale. Uh, I, I was always like I wanted the story, um, I wanted to scoop, um, I wanted it by any means possible. And so I never thought this is, I never, I never really stopped to think like, you know, is this acceptable? Because that's what everyone else around me was doing. One of the things that's so amazing about when you read the book, I keep having to stop myself and think, not only are you doing all of this, but you're also an American. Japanese is your second language. And you were uh, the first American to make it through the entrance exams and work for Yomiuri, the Japanese newspaper. Mm. What was it like being an American and being obviously not Japanese and having to make these relationships with cops, with criminals, with sources? Well, I mean, at first it was so, you're, you're, you know, I, I was, it was such an unprecedented alien thing that when I went to the Omiya police station to, to greet the, the, the vice captain of the police station, um, someone thought I was like an escaped Iranian. And, you know, um, and, you know, and, and was like, what is he doing out of the holding cell? And I'm like, literally someone just grabbed me. And then I, I, I don't know, who, I don't remember who it was, but someone said, hey, no, 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 he's not an Iranian. He is a uh, reporter for the Amirdi and, you know, he, he is here working as a reporter. They have hired a foreigner. Um, and so, you know, it, it was a, it was a wonderful bonus in the fact that everybody after a while remembers Jake. It's like, oh yeah, the, you know, that, that, you know, the Amirdi's gaijin. Right, um, you stand out. You stand out. Um, it, what was kind of interesting about the office I went to, the Arella office, um, had a reputation for being a, a hardship post because there's a lot of crime in Saitama, it's, even though it's sort of mm. like the New Jersey of Japan. Um, so, you know, nobody cared that I was a foreigner. I just got treated as badly as everybody else because they wouldn't even call you by your name. You're the people above you for the first six months, they would just call you like Ichinense, which means like, first year students. So, you know, I, I was treated much nicer by people outside of the, outside of the office. Um, so, you know, at, at one point, uh, a weekly magazine that is now defunct, Shukan Hoseki, wrote an article about, you know, foreign, and it had this title because Japanese magazines use like English titles, kind of like <laughs> the way uh, people in the West use bad, you know, like use kanji without really knowing what, the, what they're about to right. sort of decorate their bodies, right? Um, and, and, but it, you know, it was correct. Foreign newsman for Japanese newspaper, and sort of you know, an interview with me and picture of me riding my bicycle and stuff. And so I copied it. And sometimes I would show it to people um, because, it, as is noted in the book, um, often when I would knock on people's door and say, you know, you meet 
community desk, you know, they would think I was there to sell them papers. Right. Or deliver the paper. And I would have to go through this song and dance. Like, no, I work for this paper. I am a reporter for this paper. And I'm here to talk to you about whatever this case, you know, whatever the case was that I was working on. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, you know, it was uh, mostly a perk. Um, and, and really, they told, you know, when, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, the military. They all often refer to the immunity reporters as the immunity goon, like the immunity army. You know, what they tell you before you get in and what, you, what actually happens when you get in there are two different things. Um, so after a year, I was supposed to be sent to the international division where I would be putting my, you know, my bilingual abilities t- to good use, right? You know, you, you hire this, somebody who's bilingual and fluent in both languages, got a good education. Um, you would think that's what would be the natural progression. But I got a call from the head office and they're like, you know, you're doing such a great job on the police beat. We're going to keep you there. Like, we're all amazed by, it. you know, like you really have a knack for it, especially covering organized crime. So we're going to leave you on the police beat for a little longer. And I, and like, and you know, like, you know, congratulations. And I was thinking, I think, congratulations. <laughs> Con- congratulations. Speaking of covering organized crime, you covered the Yakuza when it boasted some 80,000 members and had yep. real influence at every level of Japanese society. How do you explain to people who don't know how this massive criminal operation exists out in the open in Japanese society? Ah, one of the things is that the... Um, the organized crime groups, of course, do not call themselves organized crime groups. They mm. they assert that they are humanitarian organizations. And as sure. humanitarian organization, um, by Japan's constitution, they are guaranteed the rights to assemble at certain rights. So, you know, they never label themselves as organized crime groups. Um, they would call themselves, we all know the term Yakuza, but they would refer to themselves as Ninkyo Dantai. And Ninkyo is like um, sort of chivalrous humanism. Um, kind of like the Boy Scouts, right? Or the K- Kiwanis Club, or like the um, Rotary Club, or like the Rotary Club. Yeah. Um, you know, all these things, right? That you know that they uh, that they filled a niche in society, that they took the outcast of Japanese society, and that they gave them an you know an education and taught them discipline and kept them from getting involved in street crime. Um, they you know protected the weak and fought the strong. Um, and that they were um, a necessary evil in Japanese society. Um, and to some extent, the, you know, one of the strangest things about the Yakuza in the old days was that there were definitely crimes they wouldn't commit that would get you kicked out of the Yakuza. And they're very, there was a very simple code of ethics, and they used to write it on the wall. You could see it written on the offices in most places, which is, you know... Um, you know, the things that will get you kicked out of the Yakuza are theft, robbery, robbery in the sense of using force to get money from someone, um, you know, actual cash, uh, selling and using drugs, um, sexual assault, obviously, um, and any other thing that was considered uh, a violation of the noble way of the, of the ultimate path. Um, surprisingly, um, Blackmail and extortion are not included in that list because, as several Yakuza have told me over the years, um, if you're being blackmailed by the Yakuza and you've done something terrible and you deserve the punishment you're getting, so that's social justice, not mm. a criminal activity. Um, but, you know, so when when you have these gangs that aren't, you know, stealing or mugging or engaging in sort of petty crime, 
um, and actually they keep their neighborhoods very, very crime-free, there's a sort of tolerance for them in Japanese society. And they're, and they're very good about publicity. I mean, not only did they used to have fan magazines, they would give interviews, there were movies about them, there were movies about actual living Yakuza, and sometimes the Yakuza they were about would show up on the set. Um, the third generation leader of the Yamaguchi Gumi, who was considered like the godfather of godfathers, like the most powerful Yakuza to ever live. Um, they made a film about his life based on his autobiography um, called, you know, third generation Yamaguchi Gumi leader. And Takakura Ken, who was a famous Japanese actor who you can see in, in movies like the Yakuza or Mr. Baseball or Black Rain, um, you know, he played the big boss and the big boss came to the set. Um, it's kind of amazing. While covering the Yakuza, you have been threatened directly. You've been the subject of death threats. Explain to us what you came up against as a reporter trying to report on the Yakuza and, and whether that affected your reporting at all. Um, the first time was I was writing about a Korean savings and loan um, called Saitama Shogin that went under um, for many reasons, but part of that involved huge amounts of loans made to the Inagalakai, that is one of the third largest Yakuza groups. And um, I wrote very frankly about these about these bad loads going to the Yakuza being part of the reason this um, this uh, sort of credit union for Korean Japanese was going under. Um, and that got me death threats. Uh, a death rate's enough that um, uh, Kiyotaki-san, who was at the head office, decided to call me, to basically pull me out of Saitama and bring me straight to the National News Department, um, which was lucky because in a sense, I didn't have to go through doing layout for a year, which is the, the <laughs> usual the right. usual process in Japan. You, you'd spend your years in the, in the boonies do layout for a year, and then you start in whatever section you actually wanted to be working at the beginning, if you're lucky. Um, and then, you know, uh, I, uh, I tried to write a story in 2005, um, as I was getting ready to leave the paper about one gang boss in particular, and his, his suspicious liver transplant at UCLA. Um, and at the time, I didn't know much about it other than that he had gotten a, a transplant at UCLA around this time and that uh, he shouldn't have been allowed in the United States because he was on a blacklist because he had a criminal record. He was a, a notorious Yakuza who had been responsible for the attack on a famous film director um, and had been linked to several, several murders, none of which he'd been convicted for. Um, and then I was warned off of that story very quickly by one of his goons about it. Uh, maybe 48 hours after sending a fax to um, uh, a fax to UCLA asking some questions about the liver transplant. Um, hmm. And then, uh, you know, I stayed on that story. Um, I believe at the time in the, these very weird negotiations held at uh, the Keo Plaza Hotel in, in Shinjuku, um, you can kind of see that happening at the, at the start of the TV series. I don't think that I don't think there's anyone who doesn't realize where that's from. Um, right. That uh, uh, I, I did promise that I would never write it for the Yomiri Shimbun. And I kept that promise. I just wrote it for someplace else. So, you know, I, I am a man of my word. <laughs> why, and why did you take it away from the Yomiri Shimbun? 
Um, I, I think the young lady would have never printed it for three right. years, for years to go. And, uh, and why is I that? Because of fear of the Yakuza? Yes. Or? I, I think it's fear of the Yakuza. Uh, uh, you know, the, the story's old. Uh, the guy's too powerful. Um, there were there was at least one case um, in which in, involving a politician who had been protected by Goto Tadamasa, that's the name of the gangster, in which we we very strangely changed our coverage at the last minute, um, omitting his name from an article. So I always felt like that Goto might have had um, might have been able to exert pressure on the newspaper. I don't know, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know. Since I did actually in this moment of negotiation say, okay, I'll never write it for the Umirdi, um, you know, I did want to live up to that because that's, that's kind of how the Yakuza are. Like, they're very, very nitpicky and mm-hmm. and they love to sort of catch you uh, saying something and doing something else. Um, right. So I give them ammunition. Um, I, you know, I ended up writing this article for the Washington Post and then the LA Times. Um, and I did try and print it in a uh, a Japanese news magazine. And I remember sitting in a hotel um, looking at the early draft of it because I'll send you, you know, by these days it was still fax, right? Uh, that, you know, looking at a fax copy of the article that was supposed to be print, printed. And then like a one in the, one in the morning, um, having my contact at the magazine tell me, I'm sorry, we're not printing your article and we pulped last shipment. We're reprinting it um, without your article. And I'm like, you pulped? copies of the magazine rather than put it out i'm like what's going on there and he's like he's like i have no idea but i'm just telling you what actually happened and he's like and he's like uh i would really like the copy of that i would really like that fax back <laughs> and so, yeah and so i mean he'd been such a good editor over the years that right um, i you know i gave him the fax back I'm like okay um you know i understand he's you know people get scared mm. and uh, the original publisher, Tokyo Vice, was given a three-page um, reader's report which noted the dangers of putting out this uh, of, of this book. And, and I think, very frankly, the person who was doing the assessment said, you know, uh, this gangster is particularly ruthless um, and you might have your employees kidnapped or your offices firebombed and you'll really need to strengthen security. And, of course, they dropped the book like it was a hot potato. Right. And I don't really blame them for it, so I never named them. Um, mm. in, 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 I don't think I've ever named them because I'm like, okay, I understand where you're coming from. Right. How much power does the Yakuza hold now? Are you still, you still have to fear for your life when you cover them at this point? I'm not, no longer under police protection. And uh, if you read the exciting uh, sequel to Tokyo Private Eye, which is coming out in 2020, uh, sorry, the, if you read the exciting sequel to um, Tokyo Vice, which is called Tokyo Private Eye, which is coming out next year um, mm-hmm. in French first and then English. Um, uh, it gets into those details. But, uh, uh, you know, there's this wonderful Yakuza saying, which is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And over the years, uh, I found a common friend who hated Goto Tadamasa. And at that point, I think I sort of felt like, okay, I'm fine. Um, he has every reason to want me to wake up in the morning breathing. And as long as he feels like that, I'm not really worried about it very much. Because I'm never pissed off all the Yakuza. I mean, it's like 80,000 people, right? Just one <laughs> faction run by this by this 
creepy, dishonorable, cranky old man who, who, who many people disliked because he was a cruel despot. I mean, if you could make a, a sort of Yakuza version of Everybody Loves Raymond, you could make one for Japan <laughs> called Everybody Hates Goto. And, you know, uh, and, and it would probably have at least a thousand viewers. So I, I want to just quickly talk about the, the HBO show. Uh, mm. How did that come to be? Uh, so the book was optioned for a movie. Um, mm. And that and it was going to star Daniel Radcliffe. And I really loved, loved Dan. He was such a, he was so good about studying Japanese. He was such really? a nice fellow. I mean, he really oh, so he, he, he got into a process of doing it. This Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was off the ground. It was announced. Everything was going. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, to make a long story short, uh, they tried to bring in a Japanese partner um, with perhaps some dubious ties to the mafia himself. Uh, Japan's entertainment industry is really mobbed up. Right. Um, dating back to the times the Yamaguchi Gumi used to have their own talent agency, an entertainment company called the Kobe Genosha. Um, and when the police forced that out of business in the sixties, um, they set up another prominent entertainment company who I won't name here. Um, mm. was still in business. So th- those connections are over a long time. So anyway, that deal fell through because I, I believe that probably the Japanese partners for the original movie were, were like, uh, we don't, you know, mm, we're not comfortable making this film because, uh, that may be our old boss that's, you know, being depicted here. Anyway, so I'm trying to condense this story. So JT Rogers, who is the showrunner, and I went to high school together. So JT grew up to be a successful playwright. He won a Tony for um, his dark comedy about the um, Palestinian-Israeli peace talks held in Norway called Oslo. Hmm. And so, so he had a serious amount of clout after that, you know, because Hollywood likes the gravitas of the Tonys. And he was like, let's do Tokyo Vice as a TV series. And so for many years, you know, he'd stayed on this project and I'd sort of given up on it, but he's very tenacious. So he, he first he brought Ken Watanabe on board. And so Ken was like, yeah, I love the script. I love this idea of doing a realistic uh, show about the actors and the cops and the reporters and the interactions from, from this time. So Ken was excited about it. And then uh, they started feeling out for actors and Ansel Elgort was really enthusiastic. Um, So enthusiastic that um, even though there was another actor being considered, I was like, if you know, enthusiasm counts for a lot. So Mm -hmm. if he's willing to, you know, spend hours and hours learning Japanese and he really wants to do this, why don't we, why don't we hire Ansel? Um, You know, that wasn't my decision, but, but anyway, Ansel was brought on board and he even went to the pitch meetings, um, I mean, all this stuff is new to me. I, maybe people who are into Hollywood, like, you know, like, like, of course, you know, we know what happens at a pitch meeting. I didn't know. So, you know, they pitched it. Ansel went to the pitch meeting, which is really unusual, I think. Um, and then HBO was like, let's not do a pilot. Let's do the whole thing. Wow. And, and after sort of being in development hell for many, for many years, um, uh, I was, I was really skeptical, you know, like I didn't tell anybody about it it until basically it was an, it was announced, right. I didn't even tell my own, my own family or my kids. I was like, no, 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 no. And, uh, it it took a long time we had, because in the middle we had COVID, 
uh, slowed down the productions. Um, and were you on set sort of making sure details were accurate? Like, did you play a role in the development of it? Oh, yes. I, I, you know, I am very happy to have played a role in the development of it. Um, hmm. From very early on, because I've known JT and we've been working on this for years, we went over the storyline for the first season. Um, I pulled out all my photos and notebooks and uh, even illustrations of the office where I used to work. And I worked with the set designer um, to make sure that it was accurate as possible. Um, we had, you know, all these people on staff uh, making things sure, making things look realistic. We went through, you know, there was no iPhone in 1999. So, okay, was there a camera phone in 1999? Right. Well, the camera phones didn't come out until this period. So, okay this point you can't have that there you can't have a scene where somebody snaps a phone with a photo with a camera because that's not realistic um so yes um and then mari yamamoto who is now um who had a who was an actor who's an actress i i know i'm supposed to say actor now okay she's an actress but actor either way um who was is my best friend and, and and a writer for the Daily Beast? We've been writing for the Daily Beast for years. Um, you know, in between acting gigs, uh, she'd often write, and uh, she ended up being in the writers' room as sort of a fact checker, consultant, interpreter. Um, so you know, there's JT, my one of my best friends from high school there, and my best friend in real life is in the writers' room. I wouldn't say working as my spy because she, she wasn't. I was like, I, I was like, like, keep me out of the loop unless it's absolutely necessary. But, uh, you know, occasionally she would be like, you know, occasionally she would be like, like, yeah, they've got this, they wanted to do this plot of like Yakuza versus Russian mafia. I'm telling them they're out of their minds. And, 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 and I'd, be like, I'd be like, oh yeah. Okay. All right. All right. I got to like, step in. I, yeah. I got to step here. I, I don't want to, I don't want to have to fix, you know, you know, you know, I don't have to fix 10 episodes about this or four right. episodes about this. Like, you know, what's nip this in the bud? Uh, you know, no, there, there's not a world in which the Japanese Yakuza had a gang war with the mafia. Like not, not in any, not in this universe, not in the past, probably not in the future. Um, and, you know, every, and I'd go over every script. So the first draft, last drafts, I'm mm. um, saying, you know, this is possible. This isn't possible. Um, many, many uh, late night conversations with JT um, are sometimes the writers directly about what they could or couldn't do. Um, because the, the TV series is not the book, but it is very authentic to the way the police work and the reporters right. work and, and what happened at the time. Can you tell us anything about season two? I cannot tell you anything about season two. <laughs> I can tell yeah, you sure. that, uh, that uh, questions questions that are, are, are leave the, that, that it, of course, season one ends on a cliffhanger and some of those questions will be answered. <laughs> I think that's good. Um, uh, <laughs> more, more vicer than before. Uh, okay. And, and I can say that if you read the actual book, um, there are some hints as to what happens, but you know, the, the TV series and the book go farther and farther from each other. But if you're really curious, if you just can't wait, you'd like some fodder to, to make an educated guess of what would happen to go read the book you know, that's where the roots are all right jake uh thank you so much for joining me oh, thank you it's a pleasure talking to you thank you for listening to this episode of the interview please subscribe to the interview on apple podcasts or spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with jake edelstein on mediaite.com